0: wake up in the middle of the night and you're like, oh, crap. Someone's going to click on something. I just know someone's going to click on something.
1: This is Lock and Code, a Malwarebytes podcast. I'm your host, David Reese. This week, we're going to talk about last week, starting with the news. On Malwarebytes Labs, we covered the latest data breach, which sounds boring. You are right. We understand. After all, To get our attention in 2021, doesn't a data breach have to expose the information of hundreds of millions of people while also hitting a universally recognized service? Well, then, have I got a story for you. More than 500 million phone numbers stolen from Facebook were made public last week. The phone numbers were actually already in the hands of some cybercriminals since 2019 due to a vulnerability in Facebook that allowed personal data to be scraped from the platform. That vulnerability was patched in 2019, but in 2021, that doesn't help us much because someone took all of those phone numbers and posted them on a hacking forum. Facebook users can find out whether their phone numbers were included in the data breach by searching their phone number on the data breach website, Have I Been Pwned? But just knowing that you are included in a data breach is different from having to take further action to prevent harm. With your phone number in hand, a scammer could pose as a family member whose phone was stolen and so they're reaching out to you under a new number and oh, look at that, they're asking for money. With your phone number, a threat actor could deliver a text message variant of a business email compromise attack. What's worse is that for all social engineering attacks, threat actors have better odds of harming you If they know more about you, which they can do by tying your phone number to your Facebook activity. So be sure to limit your personal information and who can see it on the social media platform. But here we are, again, talking about data breaches and talking about what you have to do when you didn't mess up. It starts to become exhausting, which actually dovetails perfectly into our main story. Our main story today concerns security fatigue, a feeling that is exactly what it sounds like. Security fatigue is the limit that we reach, all of us really, when the growing litany of security best practices becomes overbearing. So it's what prevents you from making a strong password for a new online account. It's partly why you may not update your software despite repeated notifications. It's the roadblock to enabling multi-factor authentication. It's the obstacle on your way to using a password manager. And importantly, it probably isn't your fault. After hearing repeated news stories about another data breach, another privacy invasion, another massive corporate attack, you may start to think, well what's the point? Adding stress to this is that your job as a regular, everyday user has gotten more complex over the years, and security continues to be your responsibility. So, even if you are someone who uses multi-factor authentication, you may have heard that you shouldn't use multi-factor authentication that relies only on your phone's SMS messages, or maybe you're running a basic WordPress site. And yes, you've cleaned out your expanding author list, but have you audited your plugins? At a certain point, it is normal. It is understandable to hit a wall. Today, To help us understand that wall and how it manifests in the broader technology community, we're speaking to three cybersecurity experts about what they've seen and how they've ensured others don't become vulnerable to apathy and just feeling overburdened. Our guests today are Chloe Mastagi of Point3Security, Troy Hunt of Have I Been Pwned, and Tanya Janka of We Hack Purple. Now, we are speaking to Chloe, Troy, and Tanya separately. Do you know how difficult it is to align the US, Canada, and Australia into one time slot? But for today's show, we've stitched them together. This is what the magic of editing sounds like. Say hello, everyone.
0: Hi, everyone. My name is Chloe Mistagi, and I am the chief strategist at Point Three Security.
2: Hello, I am Troy Hunt. I am a Microsoft regional director, but I don't work for Microsoft. So here, fun fact of the day. I don't have a region. I don't direct anything. I don't get paid, but I do get a nice title.
3: Hi, my name is Tanya Jenka, and I am the CEO and founder of WeHack Purple. And basically, I'm obsessed with application security.
1: Beautiful. All right, now we can start our show. Let's introduce our first guest, Chloe Mastagi. Chloe is a hacking rights activist, co-founder of both WOSEC and Hacking Is Not a Crime, founder of We Are Hackers, and chief strategist for Point3Security, a company that develops training modules to improve ethical hacking or, or red team skills so that companies can better understand their own vulnerabilities. Chloe, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks for having me. I'm excited for this. Anytime, anything about security fatigue makes me really excited. (laughs)
1: That's good to hear. (laughs) Chloe, to give our listeners a little more background, can you just tell us about what you do and about Point3 Security?
0: Sure. So at Point3 Security, I came in to basically help grow the company, but also to grow the product, also to grow new features. So I came in to basically... You know, startups, sometimes they need that extra push. They need some strategies. So then they're able to grow. So basically my role is kind of similar to like a COO. The only difference is that usually COOs, they focus on operations versus my role is to have a strategies put in place to make sure that we hit those deadlines and being able to work across each team, knowing how they function, how they work. So then we're able to grow together, especially when I'm coming to launching a new product. So my specialties is launching and growth, in other words.
1: Thank you for that. Yeah. Let's get right into it. And I'm particularly focused about making red teams better at what they do. So... In training red teams, what have you learned about how red teams communicate their findings so that they themselves do not instill security fatigue in their clients or their organizations? And so what I mean here is I could see a company going through a red team exercise. I could see a company saying, okay, we're going to test our own vulnerabilities. And then they could learn that they have a ton of vulnerabilities. (laughs) And then seeing that list and hitting security fatigue Quickly, right? Just from the findings, just from the report, leading them actually into like inaction. So how is that avoided and and again, how do red teams communicate what they find without instilling that that adverse effect?
0: Well, the one thing I'll tell you, the thing that makes security different from any other part of you know tech in general or in any industry, the reality is that security folks are Basically, how do I put it in this way? You're expected to work 24 7, which is unfair because you're not a bot, but yet you sometimes are treated as a bot. And this is one of the real realities that why we keep talking about like burnout. It's so prevalent even before 2020 for the InfoSec community because we're 24 seven, even if our, our job is from 95, reality is we have to have our phone nearby. We have to make sure that we are somewhere near a computer at all times in case if something goes down, that we are there. It's one of those things that puts us in a situation that because we're around the clock, always working, even if we're taking time off, we know that there could be that call where we have to suddenly get on a computer. We never get to have a moment of Zen. I would say like, so you never have that moment of enjoying the moment. If you're taking a break instead, the thing in the back of your mind or when you're going to sleep is what's going to happen right now. And the thing is that we're constantly worried about taking time off too, because we already feel like we're stretched too thin. A lot of security folks will tell you that they wish that there was 10 more of them. Um, because the reality is, as you mentioned earlier, is that you get this long list of all these vulnerabilities that you find and you're like, okay, so how are we going to patch these all? Who's gonna be in charge of that? Mm-hmm. And then the other part with that is the communication. So how do you communicate to your developers that something needs to be patched? And then this becomes an issue sometimes because security folks have different language over developers. And this is one of those things where it becomes even more frustration because the thing is, is that trying to communicate the issues sometimes we're like, no, you have to fix this like right now. It's a huge priority. And they're like, well, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. And it's like, no, no, you don't understand. Like, this is a massive vulnerability. Like, this needs to be fixed like right now. But the thing is, is that two teams have their own framework of what is a high priority and what is not. And so for one team, it might be, this is a high vulnerability that needs to be patched like immediately. The engineering team might see it and be like, actually, we have this other thing that's more of a priority. But the thing is, is that the communication between both teams can exhaust one another because Mm -hmm. both have their own agendas. I think that's one of the reasons why people have been hiring DevSecOps folks, because they're the ones that are going to be that middle person to be able to talk amongst the different teams. So then they're able to hit their targets in time for things to be fixed in time and reduce that energy withdrawal when it comes to when you're looking at that long list of vulnerabilities. Because I have to admit, when you look at that, it's overwhelming. And the working nonstop 24-7 is something that security folks get really annoyed about because you know, we always talk about a nine to five job, but we don't we never had a nine to five job. And I think one of the things is that sometimes you have, you know, your security team members complain that the developers, they actually have their nine to five job, like they actually set their hours and they keep it those hours. And only rare events are they 24-7. Versus security folks, it's just even their C level and the board will always assume security folks will always work 24-7. And that's the problem right there is that when you get burnout so badly because you don't have a personal work-life balance, because there is no such thing of that insecurity to a certain extent, this is where that apathy towards security of your own starts taking place. Like, for example, you were mentioning earlier about the security fatigue that, you know, you work in security, but when you have an update on your computer, you just keep ignoring it for days. You know, if you were at work, it would be different because you stop putting yourself first and your own needs first. And that's the problem right there
1: that's an extremely multifaceted problem. <laughs>
0: um, <laughs> yeah. and
1: and it also it also it, at first blush, sounds like such a big warning sign, too. like i'm I'm hearing that not only is it hard to communicate, right? Something I think a lot of folks have experienced on their own, the competing prioritizations, the competing languages, things that are priorities for one team are not a priority for another. But also, one of your teams is getting burnt out quicker than another team and the team that is getting burnt out is the one responsible for security.
0: Yeah, uh, which... always, <laughs> always.
1: <laughs> which sounds like a disaster, right? It like... is,
0: every single day. I mean, this is this is the other thing that keeps security people up because they're like, well, burnouts look prevalent and breach. Uh, someone's going to click on something. Someone's going to click on something. Everyone <laughs> always, I mean, you, you wake up in the middle of the night and you're like, oh, crap. Someone's gonna click on something. I just know someone's gonna click on something. And that's like a fear that we have. It's not just that, it's like even company-wide this apathy towards security. They're like, sure, I'll update. When you send that email like, hey, make sure you update the latest. And then the, you know, they're like, sure, I'll do it. And like, they'll do it like weeks later. The reality is they don't get it. It's like, you're making my job so much harder when you ignore this. You put our company at a risk By not following this. And I get it. You don't think you're a target. But the reality, it's always the people that don't think they're a target are a target every time.
1: So what is the solution there? I know you said that there's some folks are hiring DevSecOps, but I think that, you know, that's one part of the problem on making sure that a security team is cared for, is working normal hours. Is it just hire more folks? You know, is that (laughs) the answer?
0: wish, right? But it does (laughs) in some ways. I mean, like if you ask people and I'm pretty sure even developers would say this too. Uh I mean, securing developers, we have some similarities here. And if it ever is one of those moments like, Hey, would you reduce your pay by like 10 K or 20 K to hire like another person on your team? Yes. Hands down. People would Mm -hmm. actually want that because it gives us more of that flexibility, the reduction of stress, but to be to be completely transparent with you is I don't think that solves the issue. I think the real issue is that we are still dealing with C-level personnel and boards that don't understand how important security is and what they're doing that is putting them at a huge risk for a breach. And when you have a breach, you lose the trust of your customers. It also puts your actual like structure on hold when you're trying to, uh, you know, be there for your customers, it slows down your process, which costs you more money, but the trust and and the cost and the time, those are all add up when you have a breach. And there's so many ways to do things that are more preventative than to just put out a fire every time. And that's why we always joke about like, oh, dumpster fires. It's like our, our go-to thing in infosec. But the reality is, is that, It happens all the time because there is this sense of let's give more funds to our marketing, our sales, and let's forget about the security. And then let's also make sure that we keep pushing our security folks over the edge. I mean, even our CISO, you have to give some mad props to CISOs. Their job is literally pushing back all the time saying, hey, please don't make further demands on my team. But also CISOs are also overworked. There was like an article that came out in Dark Reading, I think last year, and they said that about forty percent of their work stress impacted their own families and children. Whoa. And forty-one percent were afraid to take off because they're concerned, and that like forty-eight percent of CSOs also said that the work stress has impacted their mental health. Thirty-five percent said physical health, and there's been such a surge of them using medication or alcohol to manage their stress at this time. So. Clearly, we have a problem here is that we have C levels that really do believe that security teams and personnel should be working longer hours. I think the percentage was like 83% of American C suites believe security teams should work longer hours. They've already assumed you're going to work longer hours. Wow. And that 94% of American CISOs report working 10 hours more than their contracted hours. We have a yeah. problem, clearly. And our CISOs have been trying to be there to protect us, but the reality is they're also in the hot water too. So it's more of a conversation is, when do VCs push for this to change? When does the board push for this to change? And when does the C-levels finally come to an agreement to realize that they they wouldn't have a company nor a product if security wasn't being done properly? And that the burnout thing is a real real issue. It's a huge security issue, but also a huge company issue.
1: Yeah. I'm glad you laid it out so clearly there. And I actually wanted to go back to something after you mentioned all those stats, which are dire. Everything you said is the warning signs are flashing. They're not like, hey, maybe. They're like red alert in every every corner you look
0: into your room.
1: (laughs) Right. And something I thought about that you mentioned earlier is that folks lose sleep because of the understanding that someone's gonna click something, right? Someone's yeah. <laughs> that's it. Like it's just a it's just a truism, it's just something that's gonna happen. And it kind of it answered one of my questions that I that I had prepared, which is, you know, what have you learned about others' security fatigue just based on what red teams are discovering, based off of what you discovered? And it sounds like some vulnerabilities will persist no matter what. And one of those particularly is like a human vulnerability that people are going to click something. And I wonder if helping people finally not click something (laughs) could also help lessen the burnout that folks like you experience, that everyone in security experiences. And so the question here is, we've known for a really long time, more than a decade, that we shouldn't, you know, the general public shouldn't click on random things. And yet, and yet we do. And so oh, yeah. oh, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, what's going wrong here? What are we not doing that, that we should be doing? Because it's a simple lesson. We should be able to help people get there. Or maybe, maybe it's just not having that option be available. Um, so I wanted to ask you, you know, what... What is going wrong there? Why are people still clicking on things?
0: <laughs> yeah, right? Well, to be honest with you is that I remember when I first joined like InfoSec and I noticed that the human element is still not on the forefront of security. And that is one of the things that concerns me is that the human element has created all these things. The human element also prevents from bad things from happening, but also can cause bad things to happen. And so by ignoring the human element, that's where we're making a huge problem i think we're doing better there don't get me wrong on it but the reality is is that our trainings have been terrible for like fishing like i don't know if you remember or have done any fishing stuff before but like i remember this one that i was in and it was like you know it's a 10 minute read through and then they asked two questions at the end of how can you tell this is a phishing email it was so far from what it looks like now today. Yeah. And it's just like one of those things where you just pause there and you're like, oh yeah, for sure people are going to pass this. And the other thing with that is there's going to be people that are not going to pass this, which is going to make me even more stressed out. We saw like a huge increase of breaches caused by clicking on links and open attachments last year. I think it was by 400%. And the reason for that huge increase is one, everyone working remotely but, also, because people are overwhelmed from the pandemic. So a lot of the emails were, you know, something pretending to be, you know someone from the security team at your company or the tech person in your in your company saying, "Hey, we have a situation. I'm doing a security check with you. Can you please click on the following thing?" So we saw that. But we also saw emails that were pretending to be like from the upcoming election of last year or from like, you know, how, how to get tested and for COVID-19. And this is the thing is that last year we were all, and I feel like we're still there. We're just kind of learning how to do better is that we were walking on a very, very thin line of being overly exhausted and not being conscious in some ways. Um, I think that it was like us being overwhelmed with all the emotions. Like a lot of us, we, there was no guidebook on like how to deal with a pandemic. Yeah. And the thing that I, I just kept telling people was that don't check your emails or don't click on anything yeah. when you're not fully awake. So always make sure you had your cup of coffee before you mm-hmm. do so. And if you are under any influence, meaning like even if you had just one cocktail, it's probably best for you not to look at anything. And the reason for that is because we were already stretched thin and burned out already. That this is another layer of just like extra cautious behavior. But I think one of the other things is that COVID-19 also did show to like our boards and to C-level personnel was that, oh, wait, maybe we should invest more in security because of all the breaches that was happening. So I think that's one of the things is it's a hard situation. It really is.
1: Chloe, thank you again for being on today's show.
0: Yeah. Thank you for having me. This was fun, dude.
1: Our next guest is Troy Hunt, a trotting cybersecurity speaker, a data breach investigator, and founder of the data breach record site, Have I Been Pwned?, which now includes more data breach records than there are people on planet Earth. Troy, welcome to the show.
2: Hey, thanks. Hey, can we say globe trotting anymore? Is, is that still a thing? Do we still use that? Oh, that's a good point. Internet trotting, worldwide web browsing. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, that's that's now all of us. So I sound much less special than I did with the previous description. Let's go back to that, <laughs> Troy. To give our listeners a
1: little bit more background, can you tell us about yourself and about have I been pwned and how it started?
2: Yeah. So look, I have a a software development background. I was very, very enthusiastic about the web from the early days of the web and spent a bunch of time building software and then just sort of gravitated towards the infosec side of things. And then within there, I got very interested in data breaches and I, I thought, oh, there's a lot of data breaches happening. This was 2013. A lot of data breaches happening. I should put them all in a database and and I'll put a text box on a page and people can look it up and they can figure out where they've been and a few of my friends will use it and it will be cool. Anyway, so 10.5 billion records later <laughs> and seven and a bit years and just all sorts of crazy stuff. And now, yeah, apparently I'm data breach guy. So these days I just spend a lot of time looking at breaches, loading them into Have I Been Pwned, Speaking to organizations that have been breached, uh, being critical of other organizations that don't do a very good job of their breaches. And yeah, just, just doing a bunch of that stuff, you know, same old stuff. Let's jump right into the questions here. So in
1: creating and adding onto, Have I Been Pwned over the years, which sounds it's like it's something that's a, a daily endeavor, obviously, multiple times a day. Was there ever a moment in which you worried that such an enormous database could actually produce an adverse effect on users and and by that I mean that rather than informing and, and activating folks into improving their security it would actually instead scare them into well security fatigue
2: look not particularly and I, I guess I've sort of had the benefit of time to give this a lot of thought here you know like we're seven and a bit years into this whole thing now and everything that I've done with the service has been pretty carefully thought through, and there's a bunch of stuff that I've adapted over time and a a whole heap of input that's come into how I run the thing, not just from end users, but when I was actually (laughs) globetrotting, when I had the time to spend with law enforcement agencies and governments and regulators and things like this. So I get to spend a lot of time thinking about it. And the fatigue thing is sort of interesting, and I I wonder if fatigue is the right word, and perhaps what we're seeing here is just normalisation of data breaches, and, in fact, I just had a, had a recollection. I went and uh, spoke at Congress in the U.S. a few years ago. And just before I went there, we, we had the, the Uber incident. So remember Uber, where it was like it was, uh, someone's breached us, let's make it a, I'm mean, quoting here, bug bounty and everything will be fine. And uh, and the penny that dropped for me there, and I, I think I ended up mentioning this in Congress as well, was that we, we're now... No longer even, I think, judging organizations harshly based on the fact that they've had a data breach because it's just so normal. But now our compass, if you like, is starting to measure organizations based on how they've handled it. Like this happens all the time. We get it. How are you going to deal with it when it happens? I wanted to go back to something you were saying that maybe it isn't
1: security fatigue, right? Maybe it's something like just normalization of the world around us. These things become normalized. Do you think that plays a role, and if so, how, in how people approach their own security? You know, because of the fact that, okay, yeah, I'm going to be included in a data breach, does that have an effect on on what they're willing to do?
2: I'd like to think so. And I, I guess to, to, to look at this sort of normalization term in a light that isn't necessarily negative, if we accept that data breaches are now part of online life, and, uh, and I think we're all sort of reaching that conclusion. Like I, I just feel that we're, for the most part, we're past the sensationalism of data breaches. And a lot of them these days just go into the radar. I speak to journalists all the time and it's like, hey, look, someone's just sent me this data, you know, do you want to pick this story up and cover it and maybe do the disclosure? And they're like, ah... It's only 10 million records, you know, not many people. It's, you know, like come back to me when it's like people's nude pictures or something like this, you know, something that's actually going to get headlines. It has become a very, very normal part of our online existence. But I guess what I'd like to think is that if, if we acknowledge that, then we also need to acknowledge that there need to be other norms as part of our online existence. So using a password manager should be part of our online existence. Using multi-factor authentication, uh, maybe trying to minimize the amount of data that we give other organizations. So if we normalize all of these things, then the impact of data breaches goes down. Do you think that we're making good progress
1: on those areas, on on having a password manager, on rolling out two-factor authentication. Because I was speaking with Chloe Misdagi of Point3 Security just today, earlier today. And she said that as a cybersecurity professional, as as someone who's involved in, in securing systems, she and her colleagues go to bed sometimes worried, you know, racked with worry, because someone is still, in 2021, going to click something that they're not supposed to. And so if we're still fighting against someone is still going to click something... How successful are we at doing more than that? At doing the step of password manager or doing the step of two-factor authentication?
2: I think part of the the sort of the discussion here is when people people ask questions. I had a journalist ask me, so are we winning the war? Are we winning the war on data breaches? It's like it's it's kind of like saying, Are you winning the war on cutting your fingernails? When will you win? It's like you you don't win. You just you just keep an equilibrium. And the, I think that the question is, are we, you know, are we in equilibrium now? Are we striking the right balance between all the imperatives we have for being online? Now, as, as individuals, those imperatives uh, include things like actually being able to do what we need to do without making online life an absolute pain in the backside, trying to find some balance between privacy and security, and and actually wanting to talk to your friends on Facebook because you're interested in seeing what the people that you can't see anymore are doing. So I, th- I think we've got to look at this as much more of a, a balance and equilibrium thing, and, and sort of get away from this idea that somehow this is something that we'll win and we'll go, oh, cool. I'm glad we're done with that, and then we move on to the next thing because that's just not how it is. I was
1: relieved, I think, actually, to hear that you said that in the many years that you've been working with, you know, been working on, have I been pwned? That that you didn't have that. That sort of crisis moment that I had described in the question, because that's that's what I would have felt. I would have felt at some point in moving from, hey, here's this cool thing for my friends, and hopefully it lets people know, okay, you know, change your password. Look at, you know, look up the account. Hey, you got breached here. Change your password for those things. Take things, you know, pay a little more attention to to some of the things you do online. I, I would have worried that that would have morphed into, oh my goodness, who cares? You know. Oh my goodness! This is so big, and and I I think I I emailed you and I said that in in my mind I had seen, you know, have I been pwned? Almost like a like a chronicling of of the bleaching of the Great Barrier Reef, right? The first time I learned about it when I was much younger, I was like, we have to do something about this. We have to you know prevent climate change. But now we're at fifty percent of the Great Barrier Reef having been bleached, and it's not just that this like ecological heaven, this pasture. Is dying, it's that it is also an indicator that things are getting worse. And I think it's good to know that you, as the person who metaphorically tells people that, you know, sea temperatures are rising, that you're not calling it quits, <laughs> that you're not saying, okay, it's over, it's done. I wanted to get your perspective then, as like you said, that there's this, this balance. Where do those billions upon billions of records fit in the balance?
2: You know maybe the Great Barrier Reef is is actually a good example because I, I think that there are points where we we do tend to get very focused on the negative. I was on the reef about three months ago down in the southern end of the Great Barrier Reef around the Whit Sundays and were. We're flying over that in in choppers, and and the fact they were saying, look, this is sort of the, the best part of the the reef, and it's actually doing very well in this area, and it's, uh, you know, it's it's a little bit more patchy in other spots further north. <laughs> we went a little bit further up, but yeah, I'm like you. Yeah, I mean, most of the news I've seen has been very negative about that, but it, it turns out there are some parts of the reef that are doing very well despite the concerns around climate and everything. And I, I think maybe it's a little bit the same in InfoSec, where there's a bunch of bad stuff happening out there. You're going to see that in the news how many times do you sort of open the news and there's this big headline, nothing went wrong today. <laughs> you know, it was good. It's like you don't see that. So your your views, all of our views are influenced by what we read and, of course, what we read does have a very particular class or sort of incident it's going to cover. I've often made the same observation around around government. A lot of people feel that the government, whichever government it is that you happen to to, I was going to say worship, whichever government it is you you happen to you happen to be stuck with. They do some things which uh, which certainly have have not been what we would like them to do in the past around uh, information security and privacy and everything. Uh, and and when that happens, it makes headlines. Uh, yeah, if, if we think back to things like the Snowden leaks, there's a lot of headlines there, and some of them very deservedly so. Now, what we don't see is everything else behind the scenes, which is which is very often done exceedingly well. But it doesn't make the headlines because it is not newsworthy, because the headline would literally be like, nothing went wrong today. Everything worked just as we planned it to. And you'd be like, didn't someone get shot somewhere or murdered? Like, can't we go and read something interesting? And that's where you'd be. I wanted to
1: pivot here a little bit and understand how a lot of what you do is, like you said, we like we said, used to be globetrotting. Now, you know, we're not allowed to do that. But a lot of what you did in that is, is you developed trainings, you, you trained people, you spoke to folks on security. And I, th- I think the number of people you've spoken to is just enormous. I, I don't assume there's any number out there that w- that's been chronicled. Why would there? Um, but it's a, it's a huge number of people. And so I wanted to understand, how do you get those security trainings? How do you get the lessons that you're teaching people to really stick
2: well, look, I, I've always found, and I, I guess I've been doing security training, primarily folks with people building systems for about the last, almost for a decade. And I've always found that what really resonates most with people is, is when they can actually see the exploit in action. So one of the things I, I seem to have carved out a niche for myself for uh, some years ago was, was i 'd use a Wi-Fi pineapple in demonstrations, so here was a device that could hijack Wi-fi connections and look it was edgy enough that arguably maybe I shouldn't have been doing that in some circumstances like I never did the wrong thing with it. People would come along to these events and they'd look down at their phone and they're like, why am I connected to my home network? Well, you're not. You're on my pineapple. You know, or I'd go, hey, look, I opened your Wi-Fi connections and they'd see all these network names being broadcast, which they've known from other places. And and this was just a a fantastic demonstration of, of why you can't trust the transport layer. You know, you cannot trust what you're connected to. This is why we need transport layer security. And that is so much more impactful than someone sitting there with a slide deck going, always use TLS, you know, encrypt all your connections, make sure the padlock's there. That's just boring. So I've found that devices like that, so people seeing things firsthand are great. And I think also making the whole thing entertaining and engaging. And this is a really fascinating industry because there is so much weird stuff that has happened There's always entertaining, engaging stuff. i have got to do a presentation this afternoon for a company in Sweden. And and one of the things I'm going to talk about is is kids' tracking watches. And I I have the tracking watch in my hand and we'll be on Zoom and there'll be the camera and I'll be showing them the watch and they can see this thing that I'm holding in my hand, which was just absolute rubbish (laughs) from top to bottom. And then we'll talk about how we found vulnerabilities where so long as you could count, you could exploit the system. <laughs> you know, and that, That's what it boiled down to. I just find that things like that, which, which are very real world, very right in front of your face, tangible, entertaining, people walk away from those talks remembering what they've heard.
1: Really good to know. I think it completely subverts what a lot of people who are listening could probably attended who have probably listened to which is like you said you know you 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 go to a conference and maybe see a powerpoint and you see a checklist you see do these five things and that checklist is the same checklist as it was the year before and it's also like how am i going to have this stick how am i going to remember this how am i going to keep this I'm curious when did you first start noticing that when that, that what what i think is a very simple like takeaway which is hands-on and, and actual experiences, things that people engage with. When did you notice that that was a thing that was making you more successful in what you did?
2: It's a good question. Look, if I sort of think back to it, and I I started my blog in 2009, and then probably about the year after I started focusing a lot on InfoSec. And for, for me, with the development background, I understood the concepts around things like SQL injection, cross-site scripting. But... Uh, yeah, I honestly hadn't actually done it before and there was a, a bit inside me that was just curious. It's like, oh, that sounds kind of cool. I wonder how it works. Yeah, and I wanted to pick it apart and figure out how it works and then I wanted to do it myself. And when I did it, now I was back in a corporate job this to- at, at that particular time in an architecture capacity, not even a, an, an infosec capacity. And I'd get this stuff to work and I'm like, this is so cool. And then I'd be like, hey, guys, come and have a look at this, you know, and I'd get other members of the team and I'd sort of show them this and they're like, wow, this is really, really cool. And so I've got a platform, I can now start blogging about this. And other people saw it and they're like, this is really, really cool. And it was just sort of a very organic thing there that was born out of me just wanting to share something that I found interesting. I suspect that part of what makes this style of training very successful as well is that I am enthusiastic about it and the enthusiasm is sort of infectious and people see it, and everyone's suddenly going, oh, this is really, really cool. And it just kind of grows from there.
1: It makes sense, right? People who enjoy doing what they're doing and speaking about it enthusiastically, yeah, it's gonna be easier to pay attention. But I also think that it's interesting that, you know, what you just said about something that has a direct engagement has a better result. I think that's what have I been pwned is, because if I go on have I been pwned and I haven't, you know, been involved in a data breach, I don't have any takeaways. I don't care. But if I put my email address in and it says, hey, look, you've been involved in these seven data breaches, which I I have, of course. There's not like a person who hasn't been involved. But I remember the first time I remember the first time using your site and seeing that, oh, I was involved in the Coachella data breach, which happened, I don't know, seven, six years ago. And that spurred me into action far better than, you know, at the time I wasn't paying any attention. To cybersecurity. But that was, you know, that was, that was a thing that got me to be like, okay, let me pay a little more attention here. I think that feeds into this kind of optimism that I've heard you have throughout this entire conversation, which is that there are good things happening. There are good things happening out there. I think it's a really good takeaway for folks. Troy, I know that was super fast, but that's actually our show today. I just wanted to thank you again for being on today's show. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for having me along. Our final guest is Tanya Janka, founder and CEO of the company We Hack Purple, which seeks to provide cybersecurity training to everyone. With such a broad goal, We Hack Purple has three core pillars to achieving success there's online courses, there's an online community where folks can talk to one another and share. And finally, there's a podcast where Tanya actually interviews cybersecurity experts, which means that today, She's actually in the other seat. Tanya, welcome to the show.
3: Thank you for having me. This is going to be great.
1: Tanya, to give our listeners a little more background, can you tell us about yourself and about We Hack Purple and how it started?
3: Absolutely. Uh, so I was a, a software developer for a very long time. I went to college for that, but I actually started in high school and got my first job at a tech company when I was still in high school. I started at a startup when I was in college. And then I actually started my own company the moment I got out of college. So I've been obsessed with tech for a long time. And one day I met an ethical hacker and he kept trying to convince me to become a penetration tester. And honestly, I was like, go away. Writing software is the best.
2: (laughs) What job could
3: possibly be better than this? And I also found the security teams really grouchy. Like, honestly, the security teams from a dev perspective have been really grouchy with me. And he spent a year and a half convincing me. And then I did a year-long apprenticeship with him and graduated. And then very quickly realized that just pressing scan on Burp Suite isn't actually what penetration testers do. And there's way (laughs) more to it. And so I learned more and more. And then I discovered application security, which became... I guess, the job I should have always had, which is sort of the bridge between the security team and the dev. So I work with dev teams and kind of enable them to write secure software, whether that be testing it for them, reviewing code for them, or trying to explain, okay, so we found this and this is how you fix it if they're having trouble. And creating, I guess, a secure system development lifecycle so they have the support the whole way through. And like you said, fatigue. So then it's not 100% on their shoulders. And so we hack purple started because basically people kept offering me large sums of money to come and train their devs. And I was like, oh, I like money and I love devs. This sounds great. <laughs> so I used to work at Microsoft. And a thing that they drilled into me so many times was you always have to scale your efforts. There's only one Tanya but there's so many people out there. And so they were the ones that encouraged me instead of writing an email to each person that writes me instead, write a blog post and answer that question for lots of people. Mm -hmm. And instead of flying everywhere, they're like, maybe sometimes you could do virtual events. And so that's what got me to write a book, which was published last year. And then that's what got me to start the company. So originally, I was just going to start traveling around and teaching in person and slowly build out my online courses so that I could scale so that anyone can learn at any time of day. They don't have to wait on me and eventually hire you know more professors, etc., cetera, and make this kind of interactive and supportive environment so that people can learn at their own speed and kind of in their own way. So I know I'm going on and on, but I kept thinking about what you said when you invited me on the show about fatigue and how it's so difficult to try to figure out how to engage people. And with the pandemic, it's been extra difficult on everyone to engage people and to make them not feel fatigued. And I'm actually learning disabled, I'm dyslexic. And so when I learn, I need to kind of go at something from a bunch of angles before it clicks. So when you're live, there's only so much you can do live. When you're electronic, well, (laughs) I can make a video and then add animations on top. And then I can have, you know, tons of articles that they can download and external links that they can go to if what they feel I've taught isn't enough. I can add subtitles in captions, right? So if someone's hard of hearing, that they can still tell what's going on. Or I can add translations to other languages so people perhaps where french is their first language and english is their second language maybe they want to read in french so i was trying to figure out ways where we could try to reach every type of person and every type of learner so yeah i guess the pandemic basically pushed up my business model by an entire year
1: as you were saying here we hack purple has this broad ambitious goal which is to help anyone and everyone build secure software anyone and everyone is sort of all of the people out there (laughs) And, and when it comes to security fatigue, right, the limit, you know, the security fatigue limit for anyone and everyone is obviously different. An experienced app developer likely has a higher tolerance than a first time developer. So in developing online classes and these on demand programs, how do you then combat sort of the various onsets of security fatigue?
3: So we actually, when we when we first started, because there's we now, there's a whole bunch of us at WeHack Purple. When we first started, my course was too hard. The first course was just too hard. I don't know how else to say it. And I named it 101. <laughs> and the constant feedback was, am I a complete moron? Like, And this is called 101 and I'm not getting it. Yeah. And I had to apologize a lot. And so I studied how to make courses. So not only did I... Like for many years, I've been just sitting in on lots of other people's courses to learn from them, but I've also been studying the way they teach. And so I started studying how to do online courses. So all the places that host online courses will teach you how to make good online courses because they want you to pay for their product, which is very (laughs) meta and smart. (laughs) And so I took all of them and I learned basically videos should be five minutes or less. Ideally, I learned... Every video needs to have, well, in my opinion, needs to have captioning specifically because a lot and a lot of the people that take my courses, English is their second language. For instance, I asked a lot of our Japanese customers, do you want me to get a Japanese translation done? And they said, no, we all read English in school all the time, but you speak too fast, Tanya. We have to read it. And I'm like, okay, awesome. And so we surveyed lots of our customers to find out what they needed and what they wanted and what would help them. And a lot of them responded that the closed captioning was really important. So then every video has to have an article because not everyone likes videos. It turns out that there's a lot of people where they want to read and they don't want to spend seven minutes or five minutes watching a video. They read really quickly, they absorb really quickly. So we've reworded it in a new way. So it's like a second way of trying to understand things. And if it's something where it is a really abstract new concept, we try to explain it in at least three separate ways because apparently on average people, so there are those wonderful, amazing people that can just hear it one way and just learn it. But most of us, especially me, aren't like that. I definitely like when, for instance, the first time I heard of buffer overflow and someone explained it, like it's a highly complex topic and I was like, oh, I get it, but I didn't know how to do it yet. Mm -hmm. Right. So then I had to try like, go to a workshop and then actually try doing it and then read about it again and then explain it to a friend. And then now I'm like, I understand. And so we try to explain things three times if it's a really tough new one. And then at least twice if it's not a really tough new one. And then we review over and over again, but try not to be annoying. So, for instance, like having a quiz at the end and then having an assignment where. So our first set of courses is basically how to build an application security program and then improve it and make it totally awesome and like develop all the policies and everything around it, which tools to use, how to engage with other teams, et cetera. And so at the very beginning, you make this really... Very basic, very minimal yeah. <laughs> appsec program, right? Because you don't know anything yet. And then, as you learn things, we're like, "Oh gosh, how would that? How would that fit into your program?" So you get them to think back to the other things they've learned and, like, how what you just learned could be used. And so we kind of make you do that over and over again. So then at the end, you do have this awesome action plan. But also, haha, you just had to review a whole bunch of times. <laughs> it's very sneaky. <laughs>
1: We Hack Purple started as people were hiring you to go and train folks, you know, go and mm-hmm. drop in and train folks. And when you're in that environment, when you're in person and you're a skilled educator, you can see when someone is not picking something up. You can see oh, yeah. when, right? You can tell when a class also is just done. You know, they're not, they've hit (laughs) security fatigue in their own way. And they're like, I've got, my eyes are glazing over. I'm not going to care about this. I'm checked out. It's too nice outside for me to want to care about this. And so moving out of the classroom then, right, to develop these online courses, it makes me immediately curious as to how do you then spot that?
3: Yeah. So If I'm giving a training live virtually, what I do is I check in over and over and over again. I'm a weird computer person where I was a professional entertainer for 18 years. So I was a folk singer and then I was in punk rock bands. And then I decided I want to make even less money. And I did comedy for a few years. Um, Yeah. It's amazing that you can it's you actually have to pay in order to go do comedy. It's oh it's gosh. an interesting industry. And also I guess I wanted to work in somehow an industry that's even less friendly towards women because I was like, this isn't a big enough challenge being in a hardcore band. But <laughs> <laughs> one of the things we do is we specifically use humor in our online courses to try to check in that people are there. So if you're virtual, you can make a joke and you'll see in the chat, like people will react. But if you are doing an automated course that's on demand for when people want it, so we have a few strategies. So one is making sure that each component's very short and very bite-sized and that then we follow it up with an article or a link or this or that. And then all of it gets summarized with a quiz, and then all of it gets summarized again in the assignments. And then again, at the end, there's another like final project where you have to go back to all of those things. We're actually implementing a couple new things. So we just switched to a new academy. So our academy platform used to be on something called Podia, and they're nice people. It's just not as advanced as Thinkific. And I'm Canadian. So at first I was like, am I just being biased because Thinkific's Canadian? But no, it's actually really, really, really good. (laughs) Um, And so they have these features where if your students aren't going very far, you can check in on them. And so we're about to turn that on because Mm -hmm. there are some people where they buy it and they zip through it. And some people, you see them slowly going through it. And some people, you're like, you did level one and then you stopped. Mm -hmm. Um, Another thing we've started, I bought this. SaaS product called bonjuro and we now basically i can send a direct super quick video to anyone anywhere in any of the achievement levels of the course so when someone graduates i like freak out i send them a video congratulating them but if someone finishes level one i'll send them a message saying awesome I'm like are you starting level two right away etc and so it's a chance for me where it tells me where they are at so I can check in with them. And we just started that and that is having really good results. We also check in like whenever anyone joins the community, like, hey, here's all the features in case you missed it. Cause we also send them an email telling them this and there's another video, but I'm like, let's follow up a few days later and like actually greet them. And then if someone shares something for the first time like it's a lot of people are afraid to share things online because people can be jerk faces, however, You're not allowed to be a jerk in the community. We use the band hammer if we have to. We haven't had to yet. but So we're trying to have more personal check-ins. And then I have staff members that will check in and say like, hey, you're here. What's going on? I saw you haven't logged in in a month. Is everything okay? And there's no deadline on our courses. So someone can buy it when it's on sale and then they can take it in six months when they have time. So we have like a few where they're like, yeah, I'm actually in a, a master's program and I graduate in like three months By I saw it was on sale so I bought it so I'm not starting till then and it's like okay so I get my employees to put like a reminder and I'm like okay in three months and two weeks I want you to write them and be like hey how'd your master's go blah 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 like gonna start now <laughs> we're trying not to be annoying we're trying to be like motivating and helpful and like yeah. we care we care that they that they graduate, right? And then once they graduate, yeah. we're like, are you looking for a job? Would you like a bunch of introductions? Cause there's all these recruiters that would like to meet an application security person very badly.
1: <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> yeah. yeah. This sounds like so much more investment than honestly anything I've heard, which sounds like it garners some good results, but something I wanted to pivot to actually is that in looking at We Hack Purple, I also saw, right, there's this like online community. And I'm wondering, does that also help? Does that help folks address their own security fatigue just to be able to share and talk to one another?
3: So far, it's been going pretty well. We had some bumps with the community. So mm-hmm. I started out on Podia and it wasn't a community. It was that people could pay money to read blog posts and no one could talk to each other. And I thought that sucked because yeah. I know this might sound weird, but as a content creator, I really like talking to the people that consume my content. Like if they have a question, (laughs) it's usually awesome, right? And sometimes I'm like, oh, I'm gonna update this article because you asked such a good question. And like, clearly I'm not covering that. And then we have these like great discussions about stuff, right? And I was like, this sucks, I can't talk to any of them. And then I realized, oh, if I can't talk to them, they can't talk to each other. And so we moved to another platform called Tribe. And if I was gonna give a review out of five, I would give like minus 20 we had this meeting and they <laughs> told me it could do everything. Like I had this list because I was a software developer forever. So I had a clear list of requirements Yeah. and I was like, it needs to do these things. And they said it does all of those things, except it won't accept the money for sponsorship, but you just like click this one little third party tool. So you have to buy Shopify and you press a button and then it works. And I was yeah. like, great. No, I had to manually do like everything. Like uh-huh. you can't set up a blog article to publish. You can't, And it was just a bad experience for the community members. So people started chatting with each other and started sharing things a bit, but just the app didn't work very well. And we never figured out how to get people to be able to pay without us manually having to track each person in a spreadsheet. And we're just like, no. So then we moved to something called Mighty Networks maybe five or six weeks ago. And since then... It is totally exploded. We only have like 100 people so far because we a whole bunch of them just didn't come over after Tribe. Like I think Tribe turned our community members so off. A lot of them just haven't come to the new one. I'm like, I promise it's good. So that... As a small business owner, I guess a startup owner, it's really hard when you invest, like I spent thousands of dollars, like moving our 250 articles in and like setting all the things up, personalize, you know what I mean? Like making all the workflows. And I was just like, gosh, it's just so janky. Like we spent four and a half months on that project and then to throw it, like just to trash it. And then yeah. I literally set up Mighty Networks in like, I don't know, an hour. It was so fast. It was so much better. So kudos to Gina who built that. And also I had security concerns and then they addressed them. And I really like that as a security nerd. And so now everyone can talk to each other and they are. And we have, you know, really new people. I also added some features. So I'm always kind of asking people like, what do you like best? What do you like least? What do you wish you had? So we're starting a meetup once a month where we just all hang out on the internet we also have regular streams for the podcast and for my book streams, but we're now adding. So, we have like this entire calendar where I'm inviting all these people who have their own podcasts to add them. Or, you know, I'm friends with the OWASP DevSlop team. So, every new DevSlop show stream is on there. And like, I want it to be all the community, not just my little corner. Right. And mm-hmm. we created this content drip. So, a lot of people told me, So we don't always understand how much knowledge we have or how smart we are or where we are versus where we were six years ago. And so I'm like, yeah, here's an article I wrote. And some of the beginners were like, it's overwhelming, Tanya. Like, it's like you're starting at level 10 and I'm over here at level one or two. Like, do you have anything for me? So we made this thing where when you sign up, you're like, what level are you? And then we just send you an article once a week that's at your level until you finish all of those articles. And then we're like, hey, do you want to go up to level two? And so it just automatically will send you one little lesson per week. And then we have different topics too, like DevSecOps versus application security versus cloud So we're kind of just like continuing to add and and add with the idea of just being the supportive place where you can get the things you need. Like we have an ask me anything section where it's like, do you have a tough question at work? Ask here, let's solve it together. It sounds so simple, but it's just, it's so nice to be able to talk with my peers about these things. Like the other day, there was this article about how some Google researchers fixed a bunch of zero days. And when they did that, in Chrome, they actually ruined an anti-terrorism project by one of the governments. And I was like, I have so many torn feelings about this because terrorism is bad, but also zero days are bad and other people could be using them. And we all had like this big discussion where we all talked about our opinions and wait for it. No one said anything ridiculously offensive. So it wasn't Twitter. (laughs) And then, (laughs) yeah. And then everyone just shared like intelligent, thoughtful replies. And I was just like, it's so cool to just be able Cause like, I feel like I learn from the community as much as they learn from me and mm-hmm. I enjoy it as much as they do. Like every day I want to go like, see what everyone's up to. <laughs> and <laughs> I was like, I want to make a corner of the internet. That's my favorite part. And so, yeah.
1: <laughs> that sounds lovely. That sounds not like a, a corner of the internet that isn't what we're used to. I mean, my first impression, right. Where you said, I, I had two first impressions where you said, you know, everyone was producing you know, thoughtful, intelligent conversation. And even if it's not ivory tower stuff, just the fact that it was non offensive, no one's here just a troll. One, I'm like, that sounds lovely. And two, because I'm so conditioned to the internet, part of me was like, I don't believe you. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe that there's a corner of the internet that's good anymore, but obviously there is, you know? Yeah.
3: There's a bunch of online communities that are, that are nice. I I wrote an article about it on my blog a few weeks ago. There's like some other really nice communities as well, where I I think the key to creating a nice online community is throwing people out if you have to. And it's really uncomfortable if you have to throw someone out. I'm one of the founders of WOSEC, Women of Security. So it's an international nonprofit. And at one point, we had to throw a chapter leader out because she was really toxic. And honestly, she was actually frightening some of the other chapter leaders. And it was really hard. And she hates me and talks lots of trash about me to this day. People are like, this person said this. I'm like, yeah, I don't care what she thinks. It's fine. She's an angry person and she's going to be angry at me forever. And like, oh, well, like I have so many better things to do with my brain, but throwing the person out was tense and there were threats and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, bye. And I just like walked them out. Cause you can do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and then that was it. And then the person was sending emails and everyone's like, please make her go away. And eventually yeah. she just tired herself out and went away just like little kids. But after I did that, we tripled in size in the first year.
1: I'm glad that you are running a community that stands up for folks. That sounds great. That is all the time we actually have for today, Tanya. So with that, I thank you so much for being on the show today.
3: Oh, thank you so much for having me. This has been a blast. Thank you for bringing up such an important topic.
1: Folks. That's our show. Thank you, of course, to all of our guests today. To our listeners at home, we'll talk to you again in two weeks when we look into a common cybersecurity dilemma for small to medium-sized businesses. Many of these businesses, we found, would love to test how effective their cybersecurity protection is. The problem is that those who do test their providers do so through imperfect means, leaving them to trust what they may not know. Until then, stay tuned and stay safe. And remember, you can read all of our cybersecurity coverage on Malwarebytes Labs at www.blog.malwarebytes.com. And please, if you like what you heard today, follow and review our show.